In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. Okay, so very quickly we do a very quick recap of where we were, um, and we continue where we left off. So what we said initially was that we asked the question, why do we spend any time studying religion? And we gave a number of reasons. The first one was that we want to live a human life as opposed to living a purely materialistic animal life. <clears throat> and this was the first and second lectures before the first break that we had. So I'm recapping because even in the big group there are a lot of people who weren't there initially so I'm not going to spend more time on that but generally speaking we said we are made up of different components, different aspects that constitute ourselves we have a materialistic dimension to our selves, we have desires and needs and instincts and we also have a spiritual side and whoever decides to limit themselves and their entire life to the materialistic aspect and the, let's call them these common desires that we have with the rest of the animal kingdom, basically, uh, is someone who has decided to live their life at that level. And that's a choice that you can make. And then the following lectures, we started talking a little bit more about the different kinds of instincts we find in human beings and what we call human nature or human instincts. And we explored those and we talked about one specific instinct that we find in all of humanity. It's a universal instinct called the religious sense. People may differ about what religion means to them, but there's something in all human beings that makes them lean towards this attachment with the absolute, with the sacred, with the infinite. And this also gives meaning to their lives. And we connected that topic with the difficulties that we go through in life. We spent a lot of time talking about how one of the problems that we currently have in today's societies is that people don't have what they need in order to face the difficulties of life. And what has changed over the past little while from before, even in, let's say, Western societies, societies that are non-Islamic, is that there was something fixed, something stable before that gave meaning to all of life, which, generally speaking, was religion. So regardless of the religion you had, there was something called religion in every society that made people find meaning to their lives. And the more meaning you have in your life, true meaning, the more you are able to cope with the difficulties of life. When things are going really well, you don't really need meaning. You can go through the routines of life without really thinking about much. The more difficulties you're under, when you're really under pressure and you have to find ways to sacrifice and push yourself through the difficulties, it's an uphill battle, this is where the meaning becomes important. Those who have meaning, 
they have a reason to fight, they have a reason to sacrifice, they have a reason to push, it's because of the meaning that they've given to those actions. And those who don't give, don't find meaning, they look for it and they don't, either they crumble under that pressure or their entire life crumbles. And that's what you see today in today's societies with the problems of depression and anxiety and it's because of the lack of meaning that exists in society. <coughs> and beyond that, we said that this is maybe one of the side effects of the lack of religion. We talked about that. But generally speaking, we talked about the religious sense existing in all human beings. And we said even the Holy Qur'an talks about it and even makes the association with the difficulty. We said, for instance, the Qur'an has many verses where it says when people go on a ship and they go through storms and they think that they're about to sink, suddenly they remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they start imploring Him and worshipping Him and praying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to save them from the storms they're going through. And once the ship reaches land, they go back to their old ways. Okay, so this is human nature. And the Holy Qur'an also, we, that's where we said, okay, but why is the Qur'an emphasizing on these situations? Because the Qur'an knows, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows that this is when we remember Allah. We remember Him when things are not going well. And that opens an entire door for us that inshallah we'll spend a couple of lectures on eventually. Those lectures are going to be about the philosophy of hardship, the philosophy of difficulty in Islam. How does Islam view difficulties, struggles in life? How is it perceived? What does it mean? Why are there so many difficulties in life? So there's an entire theory behind that and we can spend a lot of time on that and inshallah we will soon. But in part, it's so that people come back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because they're forced to. If things are going well, the majority of people don't remember Allah. Because they feel that they can go through and they live those lowly lives that we talked about initially. <clears throat> so we said that we agree, we understand there's something universal in all human beings called the religious sense. We go back in history, we look at every society in the world, we see that there's a need and attachment for religion that is expressed in one way or another. Does that mean that we can rely on that instinct let's call it a gut feeling and an instinct, to start building what we call religion? Is that enough? Just to say that I have an instinct, an instinct towards religion, my, my leaning, my tendency towards religion is instinctive, therefore that's enough to build my foundation for religion. Is that enough? And our answer was no, that is not enough. Because one, the instincts that we find in human beings, there's a number of issues with them. One of them is that not everybody is born with the same instincts. All the instincts are there, but some people have them a lot stronger and a lot weaker. Secondly, as we live our lives, those instincts become stronger and weaker, depending on the environment we live in, uh, our upbringing, our society, our culture, the experiences we go through in life. You see that people, some of their instincts, they're going to develop them a lot more. And some of them, they're going to be completely distracted from them. We all have an instinct to eat and to eat good food. But there are people who can take that and make their entire living around that. And that instinct in them, it's there for a specific reason, becomes very, very advanced, let's say. Someone who can taste food a lot more than someone else because they're a cook. 
and their whole livelihood depends on it. And they've spent so much time perfecting that instinct. Some people, we all have an instinct for competitiveness. We all have an instinct for uh, taking care of our health or sleep or maternal instincts or, or, or. And you see some people have developed those a lot more than others. So all of that to say, instincts on by themselves become unreliable. We don't know which ones are right and wrong, which ones we've been distracted from, which ones we've abused or made too big compared to the others and we're no longer balanced. So if we want to build a foundation for our faith, for our religion, then that gut instinct, that feeling, is not going to be enough. So we said, it looks like the only other alternative is reason. So the first question that we asked is we often hear that faith and reason are not compatible. So is it true that faith and reason are not compatible? So we spent a little bit of time on that question. And we said that when we look at any human being, if you ask them to park their reason and to park their intellect because they now want to have faith, Generally speaking, they reject that. Secondly, when we look at history, when we look at the reality of the world and we see a lot of the very big scientists, for instance, people who are recognized, world-renowned for having strong logic, strong intellects, scientific minds, some of the biggest scientific minds in history like Newton and Einstein, they believed in God. Maybe their own version of God, but they were considered believers. In other words, the reality of the world tells us that faith and reason are not incompatible. Maybe not as incompatible as some people want us to believe. Okay. And then we said, that's all good and nice. What about religion? Okay, well, we can't make a generic statement or general statement. Some religions, it is true. Some religions don't want people to use too much logic and intellect. And we talked a little bit, for instance, as an example, about Christianity. How right from the beginning, when you read Genesis, you see how the story of the fall of human beings starts with how Adam was forbidden from eating from the tree of knowledge. Their entire philosophy about knowledge starts from that point. Knowledge, logic, critical thinking is not good. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not want Adam to eat from that tree because then suddenly he would become like God and know right and wrong, evil and right, and, and uh, truth. So... Muslims, we completely reject that. We say that's not acceptable. That's not what the story was about. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not want Adam to not eat from a tree of knowledge. The tree was not a tree of knowledge. When you put that twist on it, then suddenly it becomes there's something called faith, and then there's something called knowledge. And they're in competition. So we spent a lot of time talking about this, and we said at the end of the day, are they really in competition? They're not in competition. The place of reason, the place of science, the place of empirical knowledge is in one place and it's to allow us to explore nature, to allow us to manipulate nature, to do things with it, to live better lives, which is completely different from the point of our faith and our religion, which is supposed to be a spiritual cleansing and to make us better people and to tell us you ought and ought not to. The should and should not 
from a spiritual, from an ethical and moral perspective, which the scientific world can never do. It doesn't have the tools. And we said the big questions that we're trying to ask in religion are what? The existential questions. Where do we come from? What are we doing here? And where are we going? And science, or reason, which really is science in this case, can never answer those questions. It's not meant to answer. That's not its job. It doesn't have any tools to address those questions. That's why they have to be addressed elsewhere. Okay? And then, we tried to understand. We said that if reason is good, what does Islam say about it? And our answer at the end, after we went through a lot of samples of verses from the Holy Quran, we saw that in our religion, not only is reason or rationality or logic, not is it only compatible with faith, we said that our religion rejects faith that doesn't have reason. It doesn't consider it faith. It doesn't want the kind of faith that doesn't have relig- uh, reason with it. It rejects conjecture, which we said is probability, you're not sure, you're guessing, and you still believe. doesn't want that kind of belief from you. You believe only because your parents said, it's not good enough, it doesn't want that belief. And we went through the verses. It wants you to think, it wants you to, to explore and to study nature, history, the Holy Qur'an, all the verses told us that. Okay. The next question was, so where, where is the role, what is the place of reason in starting to build that foundation for our religion? So we said, Salaam alaikum rahmatullah. So we said, now we are going to start trying to build the foundation of our religion based on reason. Does that mean that we can rely on reason for our entire religion? And this is where we tried to be a little bit more specific now about where reason starts and stops, and then what we do after that. So we said reason is supposed to do two things. The first one is that it's supposed to help you with what we call discernment. It's supposed to allow you to identify things that are contradictory, things that are illogical, things that are compatible or non-compatible. That's the role of reason. One. Two, it's supposed to direct you towards those big questions and start coming up with a direction towards an answer. The big questions are where we come from, what are we doing here, and where are we going? That level, reason can help you start at. But then you get into the specifics. Reason can tell you there must be a beginning to this world from outside of this world. Reason can tell you, and we will show that inshallah over time, reason can tell you there has to be an afterlife to this life. We can show that. But what does actually happen? The details of what happens, reason doesn't have any tools. It stops here. It says there must be something, but I can't tell you what based only on reason, based only on logic and philosophy and thinking. I don't have any more tools. I don't have access to that world. I have nothing to work with. 
This is where you have to go get the details from somewhere else. And this is where we said, so the job, the function of reason is supposed to be to help me go towards this man, for instance, and see, okay, what are his claims? And this is where I use my discernment. He's claiming that God sent him with a message. He's claiming that he has a miracle. I have to study it to see. Using my reason, does it make sense? Is it contradictory? Is it logical, reasonable, or not? If it is, so you used valid logic to reach that point, you're sure that now this person has been sent by God. You're sure that he has a proof to show that he's been sent by God. At that point, I can change the source of my knowledge and it, become, and it becomes a religious kind of knowledge. So I can rely on the Qur'an. But I cannot rely on the Qur'an before I've proved it. If the Qur'an is something that I'm having doubts about, if I haven't been able to prove that it's actually valid, that it's the word of God for me, then believing in it blindly is not good enough. This is where the contradiction sometimes happens. And then we took that argument and we brought it all the way down to our time. So we said, what happens now? We don't have access to a prophet. We don't have access to the imams. So what do we do? When we go back to the religion, is that good enough or not? We said that everything in our religion has to be based on reason. Everything needs a proof. But the proof can be direct or indirect. Direct means that you have the capability, the skill set, the competence, the expertise to reach the religious solution yourself. But that takes a lot of time and a lot of work to reach that level of expertise. So we have a loophole. You rely on someone who has reached that level of expertise, just like you do in the rest of your life. In every field where you need expertise, you need to build a house, you need to fix a car, your tooth is, is broken and you need to go to the dentist, you go to the expert. The same thing in religion. Does it mean that now you're following blindly? We said yes and no. The act itself may look like you're following blindly what the expert is telling you, but you don't do it before and unless you've established that this person is an expert. We've all agreed on how we do that for every field of expertise. This is what we do for a doctor in society. Until they can hang that piece of paper on the wall, I, I'm not going to go to them. When they hang it, I'm like, okay, so you're a doctor, so I can follow, I can put my trust in you. Well, same thing in religion. So, this is basically the summary of everything we've covered until now. So, reaching the point of taqlid. There were two topics that we haven't talked about, but I thought I, thought I, I would finish them off this week. And then that whole series of, of lectures will be complete. And then we can get a little bit more into directly into more what we call theology. The proofs for the existence of God, the attributes of God, and so on and so forth. In a way, what we were talking about until now is where, what is the proper source of knowledge? 
when you want to have a type of knowledge, what is the proper source? What is a valid, correct place where you can go get that knowledge? So what we said until now, we explored the idea of the instinct as a source of knowledge. And we said we can't really rely on it. That's one. We talked a little bit about science. And we talked about religion. But we didn't really go too deep in there. What we said until now is what's the place of reason versus faith. Okay, so let's spend just a little bit more time on that. When I want to build... Don't forget, the whole point right now, all we're trying to do is we want to agree on the way, we want to build the foundation where we're going to put all of our faith. That's what we're trying to do. It's like we're building brick by brick that foundation together. There's two more places where we can go get knowledge that we haven't talked about until now. The first one is religious or devotional knowledge. And the second one is what sometimes is referred to as mystical knowledge. So let's talk about the first one. What's devotional knowledge? It's basically knowledge that you rely on that comes from an authority in religion. And it could be any religion. It could be a sacred book. It could be a sacred person. The source of it is considered religious. But you follow it in a devotional manner. In other words, you follow it blindly. So for someone trying to build the foundation of their knowledge, like we are doing right now, can I rely on devotional knowledge? Can I rely on this type of religious knowledge to build my foundation or not? So it's a little bit related to what we already said last week. But we have to add a few more details here. I cannot rely on a sacred book that tells me, for instance, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala exists, and because that sacred book says Allah exists, I believe that Allah exists. There's two problems. It's actually the same problem, but looked at from different ways. First of all, it's called circular logic. Okay? I tell you, how do you know A you tell me because of B. And how do you know B? Because of A. Okay, so basically you don't know either one. You need A for B and you need B for A. So we're stuck. This is called circular logic. Or the same problem, we look at from a different way. We say you're presupposing something. Before I can rely on you as a sacred man for your knowledge, I have to establish that you're, you're a sacred man. Right? Before I can rely on this book as a source of knowledge, I have to establish that this book is a sacred book where I can use the knowledge in it in a devotional manner. That is, without proof, without further proof. So the issue with religious knowledge, when someone says, if I want to say I want to build the foundation of my knowledge, the foundation cannot come from religion itself. What I'm trying to do is to build a foundation where I can put my religion. It cannot be religion itself. That's one. That's the first one. And that's the easier one. The second one, the second source of knowledge that we haven't talked about yet, but I thought we, we get it out of the way so that we're done with all the sources of knowledge. 
So instinct, science, religion, and what is sometimes referred to as mystical knowledge. So what's mystical knowledge? So before we get into that, I'm going to spend five minutes talking about different kinds of knowledge that we can have. Someone goes to the dentist because their tooth hurts. You go to the dentist, you sit on the chair, he tells you what's going on, you say, my tooth hurts. Describe the pain, when does it hurt? Based on what you say, the dentist determines what kind of problem you have and starts working. So let's pause here. You understand that you have pain, right? The dentist understands that you have pain, right? Is that knowledge of the pain at that moment the same, or is it two different kinds of knowledge? Um, it's two different kinds. What are they? Uh, one kind is the one where it's being felt, and then the other kind is where one that's being studied. Like, you studied that okay, this is why the guy has pain. It's either this or that cord or this cord. So what's different between them? One is being actually like, I feel the pain, so like, I could tell you what kind of pain it is, but the guy, the other guy cannot tell you what kind of pain it is. He could just hear it and give you the reason for whatever pain you have. So he's not feeling the pain. He is not in pain himself. Exactly. Can you really explain the pain in words? Really, really? No. Can any words that you say be equated to the pain you're feeling? How does the dentist understand what you're feeling? It's because they must have had some experience in life before where that word was associated with the experience they were having, which was pain. Maybe he never had a tooth, toothache before. Maybe. He had other kinds of pains. And he has to imagine, okay, what would that feel like inside my tooth? Okay. And it's different. It's still going to be pain in the finger and pain in the tooth are not the same. But he's going to try to make an analogy. But the example still gives us an idea of how difficult it is to express something that we all feel very common in all human beings as simple as a toothache, how difficult it is to explain it with words, unless the person has had a very similar experience. And even then, if they haven't had it in a very long time, they're probably not going to imagine it like you're feeling it. The same thing can be said about how you're feeling. If you're feeling really sad, you're feeling very depressed, you think that just by saying the word depressed, the other person is going to feel what you're feeling right now. Or if you eat something very sweet and someone has never tasted something that sweet in their lives and you're trying to describe how it tastes. It's very difficult. How do you explain it? The only way you would tell the person is you have to taste it yourself. You have to have a direct experience of what I'm talking about. Because the alternative is what? What the dentist is doing. You said study. So let's describe it a bit more. There's two ways to know something. Either you know it directly, for instance, the pain, you're feeling the pain, you are in pain, 
You feel it directly. The, the pain is directly there to you, present to you. Or you make a mental image of it. So the dentist, when he hears what you're saying, he makes a mental image. He puts together a mental image of what you're telling him. It's in his mind. It's not the pain. It's an image of the pain. Based on everything he knows, and the dentist has studied it, so he can make a very accurate picture. But it's still only a picture. It's a copy of the real in another format. Okay. Now let's come back to our religion. At the end of this, we're all going to be dentists. Let's come back to religion. So over time, right from the beginning of religion, there are people who said the best way to understand everything in religion is by studying it in theory. Through books and through thinking and doing what we're doing right now. Discursive, discussion, dialogue, studying. That's the best way to understand religion. And there are people who said that is not the best way to study religion. The best way to study religion is to have a direct experience of the things we're talking about in religion. And if you don't have a direct experience, your knowledge doesn't even count. That's not real knowledge. This is just ideas that you're creating in your mind that don't mean anything. They're not affecting your soul in any way. So, I'm going to devote my life to making sure that I can have what we call the religious experience. So that every time I say something, if I want to say there is a heaven, there is a hell, I must have had a direct experience of those things. If I want to say there is revelation, I have to have had a direct experience of it. So when you hear the word, someone has become Sufi, or a mystic, or they study Gnosis and Islam, all these words basically mean this generally the same thing. This is what they're trying to do. There's a lot of variation, but at the end of the day, that's what these people are doing. So this becomes one more source for religion. If we're talking about how do we build the foundation of our faith, one way is to say, I go to science. And we said that doesn't work. One way is to say, I'm going to rely on my gut feeling because religion is instinctive. And we said that doesn't work. One way is to say, I'm going to be devotional. I'm going to follow it blindly. We said that doesn't work either. And this last one, the fourth way, there are no more other ways, the fourth source kind of knowledge that we can have is this type of knowledge, the mystical knowledge. So can we build our faith on mystical knowledge? Is that the proper way to build the foundation for our faith? So not to make it too long, so that we can finish on time. The short answer is no, we can't. So we have to explain that just a little bit. Why can't we? Is it because that kind of experience is not real, it never happens, it's not true? No, that's not the issue. 
The issue is, let's go back to the example. How difficult was it to describe the pain with words? To someone who has not experienced that, or is not experiencing it right now, how are you going to use words to describe what you're feeling? If they haven't felt the same thing. That's why we said, this is when you tell the person, the only way for you to know is to experience the same thing. And now we were talking about something common to all of us, like tasting something, like feeling something in our tooth, let's say, like pain or sweetness or depression, something very common, and you still hesitate, you're not sure if the other person is really getting it. Now imagine someone who tells you they now have access to another dimension. Imagine someone who tells you they're having an experience like nothing you've ever had in your entire life. You have no point of reference. How are they supposed to use words to describe to you what they're feeling? So they try. So they might write very deep poetry, very metaphorical language. They really try. They put everything they have in it to describe in the best, deepest way, most precise way what they're feeling. But at the end of the day, are you going to feel what they're feeling? No. Because they had an experience directly. And you didn't. And it's not something common. Even in that world, it's something that is not common. So it's not something where you have a lot of points of reference and you can rely on some past experience and you say, oh yeah, I've had something similar. So I know what you're talking about a little bit. I can imagine at least. You can't even say that. That's one. That's one problem. Second problem. The second problem is that it's extremely subjective. So it's something that's happening in your world only. You're the only person who has access to your own experience. So what may work for you may not work for someone else. In terms of getting to the experience and the actual experience. They're both going to be extremely personal, extremely subjective. So how am I supposed to use something that is very personal, very subjective, as a foundation for everyone's religion? Does that make sense? If we're saying that religion is supposed to be something universal for everyone to use, I can't now go back to something that is extremely subjective, extremely personal, very difficult to explain with words to anyone, and say, and now that's based on what I saw, this is now going to be where you're going to put all of your religious faith. That doesn't work either. And the last problem, there are others, but these are the big ones. The last problem with this kind of knowledge to build your faith on is that there are two things going on here just like any other experience but we don't notice it in other experiences because they're very common day to day one thing is what you experience the other thing is how you interpret your experience these are two things I'll give you an example Tonight you go, to, you go home and you sleep and you dream. It's a very intense dream. While you're dreaming, do you always know that you're dreaming? 
You do? You're sick. No. <laughs> there are moments, and it happens to all of us, there are times when you're dreaming and you don't know you're in a dream. It's not just about dreaming. I'm using dreaming as an example. There are times when someone thinks they're hungry and they really feel hungry and they're not hungry. There are times when someone feels, I'll give you a funnier, simpler example. A lot of people, when they're nervous, they feel like they have to go to the washroom and they don't really need to go to the washroom. It's, it's called psychosomatic. It's something in your mood, in your psyche, in your personality, in your psychology that's affecting something in your body. It's funny, it's just the way we're wired. Something is affecting something else. And we all go through this. But it comes out in different ways. Which basically tells us that it's one thing to do to have an experience and it's another thing to interpret that experience correctly. Someone looking at you from the outside might tell you, what are, what are you doing? There are people who have hallucinations. If you take certain medication, too much of it, too little of it, you can hallucinate. An example. You can hear things. To you, they're real. You don't know that you're imagining. You're really hearing it. No one around you is. So who's right? Is the sound there? The voice, is it there or not? Okay, so you have an experience and you have your interpretation of the experience. When you're dreaming, in your case, you're saying, I know that I'm dreaming. That's your interpretation. So your interpretation is, this is only a dream. Pro- I probably ate too much last night, and that's why I'm dreaming, what I'm dreaming. Okay? You're, you're putting an interpretation on the experience. And someone else who is not aware that this is a dream, let's say it's a scary dream, they're going to get really scared. Why? It's a different interpretation. You guys might be dreaming the same thing, but you interpret it differently. This was an example. So now let's go back to that religious experience. The experience may be the same, but we're saying it's subjective, it's personal. It's difficult to describe with words. We're trying to build our entire faith on it. So, can you take something that is so open to interpretation may differ so much from one person to another, where we don't even know what the experience really was, all we have is what you're telling us, and we don't know if we can rely on what you're telling us, because it's subjective and because you're using words, and we're not sure you can really communicate what you felt. And now this is supposed to be the foundation for all religion. And this is the reason why this source of knowledge, the mystical knowledge, it's not that it's not true. We're not saying there are people who are laughing at people and duping them and saying, yeah, I saw and I heard and I felt and I experienced. Yeah, of course there are people who are duping others. But we're not in a position to say everybody's lying. When we say we can't rely on mystical knowledge, we're not saying the person feeling it has bad intentions when they're telling us what they felt. What we're saying is we cannot rely on their experience to build our rational system of belief. What you felt is personal to you. It's your subjective experience. It's like a dream. You probably have a dream and in your mind and in your interpretation, you have to change your life now because of what you dreamt. Fine, that's your personal interpretation of an experience. You cannot generalize that, universalize that, 
to other people beyond you. So the options when you hear someone having this kind of mystical experience, it's not only two options. It's not only it's true, therefore we change the world because of it, or it's false and they are a liar. There's actually a third option. The third option is maybe they misinterpreted. Maybe the experience was true. But how do you know that their interpretation was correct? So, does mystical experience, is it possible? Yeah, it's possible. So when does it become possible? So this is a whole field in our faith that spends time and uh, it's a whole discipline where you build expertise if you want to go in that route, in that way. To work on yourself, to purify yourself. The first thing is, you need a very, very strong intellect for this. You need to understand your religion intellectually to the point where you are capable of interpreting what you're seeing and what you're experiencing. So when you have an experience, you know what you're actually experiencing. Like someone who understands what the dream means. Two people can see the same dream and they, one of them might think it's really good and the other person thinks it's really bad. How do we know? You have to become an expert. You have to know what you're doing. And you interpret properly. That's one thing. So you have to be a religious expert. The second thing is, you need to purify yourself. So that you're not open to weird psychological influence. So that what you're doing, and the, the, the summarized version of what you're doing in that world, they say it's big, three big phases in ethics. They say there are three phases to purifying yourself. The first one is called التخليه. التخليه basically means you're emptying the house, you're cleaning your house. Your house is the heart. You're cleaning up your heart from everything in it so that you make space for God, so that you make space for things that are beautiful and nice and pure and they belong in the heart. That's the first phase of purifying yourself. The second phase of purifying yourself is التحليه. You have to now beautify the heart. You ornament it. You decorate it. So this is when you go get those beautiful things and you put them in your house, in your heart. So this is a good deeds. This is you improving, working to improve yourself. The first one was cleaning the dirty stuff, pushing it out. The second one is bringing the good stuff in. And the last one is referred to as a tajliya. A tajliya, al-jala, or tajliya, in general, it basically means your heart is now like a mirror that can reflect the beauty. You clean it up, and that mirror can shine the divine light. Someone who can do that, usually, can only do that with a lot of work. Constant, daily work. It's like exercise. It doesn't happen overnight. You work on this for a long time. So first of all, you went and got the religious knowledge you need so that you can interpret 
an experience when you have one. And secondly, you are purifying yourself throughout. So that when the religious experience happens, you're confident that what you experienced is actually true. And it's a real religious experience. You're not duping yourself. You know what it means. And you're not, you know that you're doing it because you're getting closer and closer to, to God, to the truth, to things that are good for you. So this is all to say, is it possible? Yes, it is possible. And our scholars say this is the way to do it if you're interested. But even that doesn't mean that this is now going to become the way you build the foundation of your religion. So the foundation is limited to what? To what we presented until now, which was reason. Reason is your universal foundation for religion. It gets you to the right questions and it gives you the ability to assess the different answers you can have to those questions. And then the details come from religion. So I want to know the details, the attributes of God in detail, I go to religion. But does God exist? I can prove God exists only with reason. Even if religion doesn't really help me, I can come up with a few proofs for the existence of God. And we'll see some. And then of course I can go to religion and get more. I can go to religion and get a lot more detail about what does that God actually do. What are his attributes? What are his descriptions? I understand that there's a life after death. I can prove that with reason. And we will. But what happens exactly? What happens when my body is put in the grave? What happens Yom Al-Qiyamah? What is Yom Al-Qiyamah? What does it mean? Reason cannot do anything there. This is where you have to go get the details from another world that has access to another reality. So long as you've proven, you've established the validity of that other source, which is religion. So until now, the summary of everything we've said is that the sources for knowledge, the possible sources, instinct, science, mystical knowledge, and reason, we reject three of them. We keep one, which is reason, to build the foundation. All the three others help us. We can go get stuff we need from the instinct. We can go get stuff we need from science. Science can help me come up with better proofs for the existence of God. <clears throat> but the actual proof is not from science. The data I take is from science. I can use mysticism, I can use the instinct, and I can use science. But none of them can replace reason. Reason alone can go a very long way. None of them can. All of them are going to have a problem to establish, as we said, we're only working now at putting in place the foundation of our faith. Once you've built that foundation, you've established rationally that there is a man called Muhammad who came with a book that is valid, sent from God. He's infallible. We prove the infallibility through the, and the message that he comes with, with a miracle. We do that with other prophets. Once you establish that, then you can go rely on what's in that book. And at that point, you don't need it to be purely rational. It's indirectly rational. But it's not blind completely, because you've established at a rational level before, you've established that it's valid. And now you can rely on it.
just like you rely on the expert for your car or the dentist for your teeth. Sounds good? وَصَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَى سَيْدِنَا مُحَمَّدٍ وَعَلَى آلِهَا الطَّيِّبِينَ الطَّاهِرِينَ اللهم صل على محمد وعلى محمد